We continue today in our series of the so-called Sermon on the Mount that Cam has been taking us through and others who have contributed. And today we come to Matthew chapter 6 and uh, we'll look at probably about half of that chapter briefly together. Today we think of kingdom worship as the Lord Jesus outlines it for us and as he speaks to us of it. In these chapters, in these verses that we'll be looking at, he speaks of good works, of prayer and of fasting and then we'll think more specifically of the Lord's Prayer. One of our problems, I believe, is that we so often equate worship just simply to what we do on Sundays. Whereas, as far as God is concerned, as far as the Bible is concerned, worship is the sole reason of our activity in everything we do, everything we say in our lives day by day. Kingdom worship involves our whole life in order that we might bring praise to our Father. In the book of Ecclesiastes it says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. In Hebrews it speaks of the sacrifice of praise even in the midst of difficulties and problems. In Romans the Apostle Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice wholly acceptable to God which is your reasonable service. The word reasonable there means rational. It also can be translated as spiritual. It pertains to spiritual reason. It's the same word that Peter uses in 2nd 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2 when he says have the pure milk of the word, the spiritual milk of the word. Our Father is just as interested in what we do on Mondays in our work, in our homes as what we sing on Sundays. As Christian people There should be the offering of our lives to God, the offering of our praise to God, the offering of our service to God in everything we do. So it doesn't matter if we're a a lawyer or a doctor or a ditch digger or a truck driver or a nurse or a housewife or whatever we're doing. We should strive to be the best we are at all of those things. We mightn't physically necessarily be the best at it, but we should be the most earnest. There should be the offering up of everything we do to our Father as worship. And so today we'll think briefly of these three just by way of introduction. He speaks first of all of good works. 
Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen of them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by their men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your right hand know what your left hand don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He speaks here of acts of righteousness and as well as acts of charity. The things we do because we are justified. Things that are fair and equitable. Justice, virtue, generosity, almsgiving. He doesn't say these are the things you should do. He presumes we do them. He says when you do them. Just as he says when you pray and when you fast. But what he's saying is when you do them, do them as unto your Father, not for the praise of men. Not like the Pharisees who make a big show of now I'm giving to the poor and I'm now I'm doing this and now I want everyone to know what a great fellow I am. They have their reward, he said. They've already received their reward in full. People have patted them on the back and said, you're a good fellow. That's their reward. But he says, when you do these things, do them in secret. But your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And then he speaks of prayer. But when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen of men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. When you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, knows our needs. Just as a parent watching over their children knows what the children's needs might be so that when they come and say, Mummy, I'm hungry, I want something to eat, they provide it for them. Not in ostentation, not letting everybody know that we've been praying about something, not letting everybody know that, that we are great people of prayer, they have their reward, says the Lord Jesus, the praise of men. But when you pray, he says, go to your room in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. He will hear your prayer. He will grant you your requests. He will meet your need.
I can't stress enough the need if we are going to grow, if we if we are to grow in Christ for a daily time in our lives where we set aside time to be with God alone. Without the interference of other people, without the interference of the world, without noise and without clamour, to wait on him in his word, to pray to him in secret. Because he will hear us and he will meet our needs. If it's not your practice to do that, may I recommend it to you. It's something that is vitally necessary in the development of our Christian life and for the succour of our souls. And when you pray, he says, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't just repeating the same things all the time. But think about what you're praying. Ask with genuine heart requests, knowing that your father listens. A few years ago when my son took me to visit my father's birthplace in Darjeeling in India, his parents were missionaries there, we visited, amongst other things, a Hindu temple, sorry, a Buddhist temple. And on the side of the temple were these great big cylinders, quite tall, quite high, a whole row of them. And I learned that they were the prayer cylinders. So that when a person came to worship, on these cylinders were written all kinds of prayers and requests. They would simply walk along spinning the wheels, the babbling of the heathen. Very often, if prayer for us is but emotion, an exercise we go through for the sake of it, then very often our prayers will not go past the ceiling. But when our prayers are the earnest desire of a penitent heart, a heart that is resting in God, a, a, a heart that is, is aware of their need before God, God says, I'll hear them. And then he goes on in the next few verses to speak about fasting. And again he begins by saying, when you fast. <laughs> when you fast, do not look sombre as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Fasting had become an art amongst the hierarchy of the Jewish people, but they made sure everybody knew they were fasting. They would put white paste on their faces. They would make themselves look distraught to let people know. No, says Jesus, don't do that. When he says, put oil on your head and wash your face, He's not necessarily suggesting that we should put oil on our heads. He's just saying, act naturally. Go about life as though 
everything is just the same as normal. Don't make a show of fasting. They have their reward. People think, oh, he's a good chap, he's fasting. That's their reward. Nor should we use fasting to get our own way. I remember being in a church once where there was one particular man there who, to get his way within the church, he would often say, oh, I've been fasting about this. In other words, so somehow because he had been fasting, then obviously the church should do what he was suggesting. No, that's not what it's all about. Fasting is something that I think has gone out of fashion, especially in our Western world. And yet the word of God still stands when you fast. When you do your righteous deeds, when you do your almsgiving, when you pray, when you fast. What is the purpose of fasting? Some time ago, just a couple of years ago, I spoke to a friend of mine who was of the Eastern Orthodox Christian persuasion and they fast regularly. Sometimes for a month at a time they have a, a sort of a vegan fast and at other times, special times in the calendar. And I was concerned about his relationship to the Lord, not knowing whether he was trusting in his good works or in in his religious observance. So I said to him one day, why do you fast? I was hoping he was going to say, oh, that's how we earn favour with God. Then I was going to talk to him about justification by faith, you see. But he didn't. He put me right back in my place by saying we fast in order to keep our flesh under control and to cause us to think more deeply about God. And I thought, that's why I fast. Some years ago, I was battling and wrestling with this matter. Why do we fast? What is the purpose of it? Trying to come to terms and understanding of it. And at the particular time, I was speaking to a man who was dying and I knew he didn't know the Lord and I'd been talking to him about his salvation suggested he read the, the word of God and, and one day he rang me up and it was the time when actually for a few days I had been fasting for him, praying for him. And he rang me and said, I found the Lord. And then I was thanking God and praising him in my living room. It was as though the Lord just said to me, that's what fasting is all about. For when we fast, we not only bring our flesh under control, by self-control, but it focuses our attention on the thing that we're praying for. Because as you become hungry, as your body craves for food, your mind is intensified Lord, this is what I'm asking you for at this time. And it would seem to me that prayer and fasting go hand in hand. I believe fasting is also important because it highlights one of the fruit of the Spirit, 
one that we never basically hear sermons about. We hear about love, joy, peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and self-control and meekness and faith, but we very, very rarely hear about the fruit of the Spirit that is self-control. The mastery of self, it means continence, spiritual continence, temperance. We often talk of that trilogy of evil against which we face, against which we battle day by day, the world, the flesh and the devil. The world can only tempt us. The devil can sometimes trip us up and can tempt us only. Sometimes I believe we give the devil far, far too much importance, far, far too much credit for things that go wrong in our lives. But the thing that we should fear most, the thing we will battle with most, the thing will give us the hardest time and trip us up all the time until we are taken into glory will be our own flesh. Because unfortunately we still have that hanging to us of our old nature. We pamper the flesh. We excuse the flesh. We make allowances for the flesh. When Paul says it needs to be brought under control. The Apostle Paul said, I beat under my body and bring it into subjection lest having preached to others I myself should be cast away. I don't believe for a moment the Apostle Paul was involved in things like self-flagellation and so on. But he disciplined his body. And in that verse where he says, I beat under my body and I bring it into subjection, he uses two very strong words. Subjection means to be a slave driver. And when he says, I beat under my body, the Greek word means to receive a sharp blow between the eyes. So Paul basically says spiritually, to keep under my body, I give myself a good smack in the nose. And I'm a slave driver with my body. With the things that I know will tempt me. In one place Paul says to flee youthful lusts. I think if I'd been writing the New Testament now at my age, I would have added flee old men's lusts. Flee middle-aged lusts. And we need to be ruthless with our bodies. We're not talking about stoicism. We're not talking about standing and doing the best we can. We're talking about objectively, positively refusing to feed the flesh. The whole of the New Testament speaks about that. So if you know certain things are going to lead you into temptation, then don't do them. Don't become involved with them. If you know certain situations will cause you to sin, then keep away from them. If you know certain things that you might read or watch are going to inflame your lusts, then don't watch them. Don't read them. Flee. Flee them. When you fast, so how do we fast? Well, we need to live as normally as possible. Simply going without a meal 
to start with now again in order that we might concentrate our prayer or maybe for longer periods. It's an exercise I would recommend again to you as the need to have a daily time with God in order that we might wait more fervently upon our God. And then we go back to the passage of prayer and we come to what is known as the Lord's Prayer. Actually, the Lord's Prayer, I believe, is John chapter 17 where he prayed for his disciples. He prayed for us. But we call it the Lord's Prayer. And he said... Don't babble like the heathen. But this is how you should pray, he begins. This is how you should pray. I don't believe he intended us simply to go through the motions of saying these words as a form of prayer. But was giving for us a pattern of prayer that we should use in our lives. And I would suggest it's probably back to front from the way we generally pray. Because the Lord's Prayer focuses on God to start with and then on us. Whereas when we pray, we usually focus on us and if we've got time on God. This is how you should pray. Don't just babble it off, but pray after this manner. It always amazes me if you go to a, a public function and it might be a funeral or it might be a civic service and for some reason they repeat the Lord's Prayer and everybody seems to know it. They just rattle it off. Irrespective of whether they know the Lord or not. Don't babble it, he says, like the heathen that pray this way. And I would suggest to you today that if in your prayer life that we pray after this fashion, after this manner, it will revolutionise our times of prayer because it will lift our hearts to where they should be in fellowship with our Father. He begins by saying, Our Father in heaven. This would have been quite revolutionary to those who were listening to him. Because the Jewish people held the name of God in such awe and reverence that they actually had a special name that they would talk about when they talked about God so they didn't have to say the real name. Such was the awe in which they held the Creator. And now the Lord Jesus is saying, when you come to pray to this almighty God whom we worship, call him Father. Father. Not only is he Father, but he is our Father in heaven. We come as we begin to pray to acknowledge that we're coming into the presence of the almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, 
King of kings and Lord of lords, the Holy One of Israel, the one who is utterly and completely pure, the one who never changes, the one who is utterly faithful, the one who is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, the one who sits in the heavens. Jesus says, come and call your Father. And not just Father, but our Father. So that when we come to pray, we come in the name of Jesus. We come as him as our high priest. We come acknowledging that it's only by him and through him that we can come. But we come as joint heirs with Christ and say, our Father, coupled with him as we pray. Remembering too that we are part of a family. I think I've said before, one of the things that I look back on my life when I think about it is that my parents did not consult me when they had my brother and sister. I had no choice in the matter. I had no preference in the matter. We get on well. Praise God. In the kingdom of God, we have no choice as to whom God chooses to be our brothers and our sisters. And if we're going to come with an honest heart before God and say, Our Father, we come, Lord, that means Mary and Joe and Bill. Yes, they're your children too. I come with them in my heart and pray. Our Father who art in heaven. And if we begin to think that way, then somehow it will also alter our relationship to them. It becomes more inclusive of them and their concerns in our hearts as well. And then there follows three, two sets of three petitions, if you like. Still concentrating on the Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Let your name be holy. And we can pray, that means Lord in all the earth, let, let your name be holy. Let people love you, let people exalt you, let people give you to you the honour that is due to your name. And Lord, as it affects my life, as I go about my work today, as I go about my schooling today, as I go about my social rounds today, in everything I do, let your name be set apart as holy. Because it is a personal thing. Let your kingdom come. You are almighty God, ruler of heaven and earth, creator of heaven and earth. Your desire is that your kingdom should come upon the earth for the day that is coming when the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I pray for that day. Lord, let your kingdom come in those places where there's so much war-torn strife, in those places where so many people are hungry, 
in those places where so many people are suffering, let your kingdom come. Let your rule be in my heart today. Be my sovereign. Be my Lord today. I submit afresh to you. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I know that it's not your will that the world should be at war. I know it's not your will that injustice should happen. I know it's not your will that so many things that appear to be wrong that men do to one another should go on. I pray, Lord, for them. I pray for that work of your Spirit amongst them. And I pray too that your will might be done in my life. Today as I go about my daily rounds, in my home, in my place of work, wherever I am, let your will be done just as it's done in heaven. You thought of how God's will is done in heaven. You need to read books like Isaiah and Revelation and all those angels, all the myriads of, of angels there and the seraphim and the cherubim waiting, waiting to do the bidding of the Father, waiting to fulfill his plans and purposes, expectantly looking to him. I will guide you with my eye, God says. As we pray, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I'm looking to you today because I really want to be what you want me to be. And then we get to our own needs. Give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. We find this prayer repeated in Luke's Gospel when on an occasion when the Lord Jesus was praying, Luke tells us that the disciples came, observed him praying, said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so he went through this prayer again. But he makes a slight difference uh, in this one of daily bread. So you put the two together. He said, give us today our bread for tomorrow. Not meaning that we should put up a store and have a store in hand, but it's that idea of daily bread, giving day by day what we need. And I don't think bread is just confined to food or clothing, but confined to all our needs. We all have needs of so many different kinds, emotional needs, needs that are pressed upon us because of the circumstances of our life. Maybe we'll be people here today who are going through Deep needs, deep sorrow. As we come and acknowledge that God is Lord, that he is sovereign, that, that he's our Father, and we want his will to be done, Father, give me day by day my daily bread. Meet my needs, Father, for I'm so reliant upon you. Forgive us our debts, he goes on, as we also have forgiven our debtors. I'd like to expand on this thought a little more for the simple reason that the Lord Jesus does. He says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. He says the same thing in other passages of the New Testament, in Luke and other Gospels. And it's interesting to me that when he says, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And I checked. And the word have forgiven is in the past tense. That's what in the Greek is called an aorist tense, which means it's a done deal. Once for all, finished. The Lord Jesus is saying here, we pray Forgive us our debts, our transgressions, as we forgive them, not just as we forgive them, but as we have forgiven them. He's saying, in effect, our forgiveness of others should precede our asking of forgiveness for ourselves. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those that are indebted to us. Which highlights, I believe, another principle in our Christian experience. That is of our moral responsibility in the act of our salvation. We're living in a day where very often we hear people say, Jesus has paid for all our sin. All we have to do is just trust him to forgive us. And it doesn't really matter how we live, but all that sin has been forgiven. All the sin that we will ever commit has been forgiven. All the sin we have committed. And all that's true, wonderfully true. There is forgiveness for every sin. There is no sin that can ever be committed by a human being. It cannot be forgiven. But all through the New Testament, in fact, all through the Bible, I find it spoken of that a part of our coming to God and asking for that forgiveness is an act of repentance that gives up the sin. Last week, Cam spoke about bringing our gift to the altar if we're angry with someone And the Lord Jesus said, then leave your gift before you come and pray. Leave your gift at the altar. Go and put things right with your brother. Then come back and offer your altar. He's saying the same thing here. You come and ask for forgiveness and make sure that first of all you have forgiven others. This isn't a new problem. The Apostle Paul faced it for in Romans He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Perish the thought. May Ganoite. Don't even think of such a thing. Because the forsaking of sin goes hand in hand with the act of repentance and knowing the forgiveness of God. That doesn't mean we earn our salvation by not sinning. We earn our salvation because Jesus died on the cross for us. We earn our salvation because he paid the price. We can never pay for that. 
evidence of the fact that our heart is right toward God is seen in the fact that we forsake our sin. Paul said to, to in, in, in one of his letters, let him, let him that stole steal no more. Don't let any corrupt communication come out of your mouth. The argument that God had with the nation of Israel time after time was these people draw near to me with their mouths but their hearts are far from me. Rend your hearts, he said, and not your garments. You bring your sacrifices and your offerings and you continue to do the things for which they pay. In John 1, the apostle who obviously would have heard the Lord Jesus speaking of forgiveness many occasions says, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him there is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has ever seen him or known him. Neither, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. This is how we know who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil. Anyone who does not do what is right is not of the child of God. Neither is anyone who does not love his brother, one who will not forgive his brother. Now John is not saying that we will never sin. We do, continually, often. But what he's saying is we will not make a habit of sin. We'll make a contract with God as a part of our relationship to him that we will put sin out of our lives in whatever shape or form it comes. The word that's used in the Greek is a continuing. He won't continue to sin. He won't go on habitually sinning. Oh, often we, we do things, that we, we grieve by them, we ask God to forgive us, we're repentant and our hearts are given peace by him. That's not what John is talking about here. He's talking about going on sinning willy-nilly as though somehow we'd never submitted the knee to Almighty God. In the book of Hebrews, the writer goes even further. So this battery says, oh, no, here we go. No, we go back to him. If we deliberately... And the word means willfully, willingly, voluntarily keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth. No sacrifice for sin is left. But only a fearful expectation of judgment, of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a person deserves to be punished? who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. 
go back to the passage, one of the passages to which he's referring. If anyone sins unintentionally, unwittingly, ignorantly, inadvertently, he may bring a year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement before the Lord for the one who erred by sinning unintentionally. And when atonement has been made for him, he will be forgiven. One and the same law applies to everyone who sins unintentionally, whether he be a born, native-born Israelite or an alien that lives among them. But anyone who sins defiantly, presumptuously, haughtily, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, that person must be cut off from his people. Because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his commands, that person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. Just as the Lord Jesus said, say, Father, forgive me, just as I have forgiven others. So he speaks, the word of God speaks about sinning willfully, continually doing those things that we know are wrong. Instead of putting them to death and allowing him to deal with them once and for all. The wonderful thing, of course, is that if we sin willfully and we acknowledge the fact that we've done that, we come in true repentance and we change our ways, there is forgiveness for every sin. I think of Manasseh, the king of Israel, a man, an evil man, probably in the same category as men like Stalin and Hitler. The Bible tells us that he came to his senses, he came to God despite all the evil things he'd done. He asked God's forgiveness with a penitent heart and God forgave him. There is no sin that God cannot forgive, but it must be accompanied by a penitent heart. The Apostle Paul knew that. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointed me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. Why? Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Paul understood the Old Testament. He understood that all the sacrifices of the Old Testament covered sins of ignorance, sins that people just did because they were people things that happened without necessarily any malice in their hearts, but that there was no forgiveness, no sacrifice, no blood that would cover a sin that was deliberate and malice and haughty and proud because it means that that person is never really subjected to the reign of Christ in their life. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. of the Lord Jesus when they came to the place which is called Calvary. There they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right hand, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Why? For they do not know what they are doing. When the Lord Jesus hung there on Calvary's cross, he pled the atonement for the men who put him to death. Father, they're not doing this deliberately. They're not doing this maliciously. They just simply do not understand what they're doing. Therefore, please forgive them. Please cleanse them. Please wash them. For they, they don't know what they're doing. And that cry rings out from the cross to you and to me today. That same cry, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
Father, they sin against you continually, but I ask for them your forgiveness. Is it any wonder that he says, if you come and say, Father, forgive my debts, you've already forgiven someone else because the debt we owe to God is nothing compared with anything anyone else could ever do to us. Highlighted in that parable that the Lord Jesus told of the man who was forgiven millions of dollars and went out and took by the neck a man that owed him, owed him a, few, a few dollars. Not showing that mercy and that grace. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. The command or the request, lead us not into temptation, in the Greek is actually a command not to begin. God has never led anyone into temptation. In the book of James it says every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lusts. Let not that man say when I'm tempted, I'm tempted of God. God never tempted anyone into sin. He says now pray that I'll never do it. Pray that you might be delivered from it. But deliver us from the evil. What in the Greek just simply means the evil. could mean the evil one or evil in general. Praying that the Father should keep us from the things that spoil, the things that dishonour his name, the things that, that grieve him. But at the same time, making sure that we don't put ourselves in the places of temptation in order that that might happen. In some translations, this last section is added and I love to put it in the Lord's Prayer because it just seems to round it off because we finish our prayer with God. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We worship him, we praise him. He is our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven let your name be hallowed. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Give us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And if we begin to pray that way, if we use that pattern for our praying, for our, for our own individual prayer life, it will make a difference to the way we pray. For we centre our thoughts upon God. And I've found there have been times when I've come to God in prayer when I've had so many things pressing on me, I've hardly known where to begin. And I've prayed this way, and by the time I've got to the end of your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I've always forgotten what I was going to ask him for because they didn't seem important anymore. Because he is central. He is Lord. Shall we pray? Our Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Father of every born-again believer, our Father in heaven. Let your name be hallowed and made holy as it pertains to everything to do with our lives, our service, our homes. Let your kingdom come. Have your rule and reign in our hearts. Let your will be done on earth in every circumstance of my life, in the life of my family, in the life of my friends, as it is in heaven. Father, I acknowledge I'm utterly dependent upon you. Give me day by day the things that I need to live as a human being. Thank you that you know my frame. You remember that I'm dust. Forgive my transgressions. And Lord, I forgive those who transgress against me. Don't lead me into temptation. I get into enough trouble on my own. Deliver me from the evil one. I come in the worthy name of Jesus. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We're going to close our service today a little differently. We're going to stand in an act of worship and watch a rendition of the Lord's Prayer by uh, the world-renowned tenor Andre Bocelli, and then I'll close in prayer. Shall we stand and worship? <laughs>